Chapter Seven of The Range Dwellers by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One day too late. I suppose there is always a time when a fellow passes quite suddenly out of the cub stage and feels himself a man, or at least a very great desire to be one. Until that Fourth of July, life had been to me a playground, with an interruption or two to the game. When Dad took such heroic measures to instill some sense into my head, he interrupted the game for ten days or so, and then I went back to my play, satisfied with new toys. At least, that's the way it seemed to me. But after that night, things were somehow different. I wanted to amount to something. I was absolutely ashamed of my general uselessness, and I came near writing to Dad and telling him so. The worst of it was I didn't know just what it was I wanted to do, except ride over to that little pinnacle just out from King's Highway and watch for Beryl King. That, of course, was out of the question, and maudlin, anyway. On the third day after, as Frosty and I were riding circle quite silently and moodily together, we rode up into a little coulee on the southwestern side of the White Divide, and came quite unexpectedly upon a little picnic party camped comfortably down by the spring where we had meant to slake our own thirst. Of course, it was the king's house party. They were the only luxuriously idle crowd in the country. Edith and her mother greeted me with much apparent joy, but really, I felt sorry for Frosty. All that saved him from recognition then was the providential nearsightedness of Mrs. Loriman. I observed that he was careful not to come close enough to the lady to run any risk. Aunt Lodema tilted her chin at me, and Beryl, to tell the truth, I couldn't make up my mind about Beryl. When I first rode up to them, and she looked at me, I fancied there was a welcome in her eyes. After that, there was anything else you liked to name. I looked several times at her to make sure but I couldn't tell any more what she was thinking than one can read the face of a Chinaman. That isn't a pretty comparison, I know, but it gives my meaning, for, of all humans, chinks are about the hardest to understand or read. I was willing, however, to spend a good deal of time studying the subject of her thoughts, and got off my horse almost as soon as Mrs. Loriman and Edith invited me to stop and eat lunch with them that Weaver fellow was not present, but another man, whom they introduced as Mr. Tinbrook, was sitting dolefully on a rock, watching a maid unpacking eatables. Edith told me that Uncle Homer, which was Old Man King, and Mr. Weaver would be along presently. They had driven over to Kenmore first on a matter of business. Frosty, I could see, was not going to stay, even though Edith, in a polite little voice that made me wonder at her, invited him to do so. Edith was not the hostess, and really had no right to do that. I tried to get a word with Miss Beryl, found myself having a good many words with Edith instead, and in fifteen minutes I became so thoroughly disgusted with unkind fate as ever I've been in my life, and suddenly remembered that duty made further delay absolutely impossible. We rode away, with Edith protesting prettily at what she was pleased to call my bad manners. For the rest of the way up the coulee, 
Frosty and I were even more silent and moody than we had been before. The only time we spoke was when Frosty asked me gruffly how long those people expected to stay out here. I told him a week, and he grunted something under his breath about female fortune hunters. I couldn't see what he was driving at, for I certainly should never think of accusing Edith and her mother of being that especial brand of abhorrence. But he was in a bitter mood, and I wouldn't argue with him then. I had troubles of my own to think of. I was beginning to call myself several kinds of a fool for letting a girl, however wonderful her eyes, give me bad half-hours quite so frequently. The thing had never happened to me before, and I had known hundreds of nice girls, approximately. When a fellow goes through a co-ed course and has a dad whom the papers call financier, he gets a speaking acquaintance with a few girls. The trouble with me was I never gave the whole bunch as much thought as I was giving to Beryl King, and the more I thought about her, the less satisfaction there was in the thinking. I waited a day or two, and then practically ran away from my work and rode over to that little butte. Someone was sitting on that same flat rock, and I climbed up to the place with more haste than grace, I imagine. When I reached the top, panting like the purr of the yellow peril, my automobile, when it gets warmed up and going smoothly, I discovered that it was Edith Lorman sitting placidly with a camera on her knees, doing things to the internal organs of the thing. I don't know much about cameras, so I can't be more explicit. If it isn't Ellie, looking for all the world like the Virginian just stepped down from behind the footlights, was her greeting. Where in the world have you been that you haven't been over to see us? You must know that the palace of the king is closed against the Carltons, I said, and I'm afraid I said it a bit crossly. I hadn't climbed that unmerciful butte just to bandy commonplaces with Edith Lorimer, even if we were old friends. There are times when new enemies are more diverting than the oldest of old friends. Well, you should come when Uncle Homer is away, which he often is, she pouted. Every Sunday he drives over to Kenmore and pokes around his miners and mines, and often Terence and Beryl go with him. So you could come? No, thank you. I put on the dignity three deep there. If I can't come when your uncle is at home, I won't sneak in when he's gone. I... How does it happen you're away out here by yourself? Well, she explained, still doing things to the camera. Beryl came out here yesterday and made a sketch of the divide. I just happened to see her putting it away. So I made her tell me where she got that viewpoint, and I wanted her to come with me so I could get a snapshot. It is pretty, from here. But she went over to the mines with Mr. Weaver, and I had to come alone. Beryl likes to be around those dirty mines, but I can't bear it. And now I'm here, something's gone wrong with the thing, so I can't wind the film. Do you know how to fix it, Ellie? I didn't, and I told her so, in a word. Edith pouted again. She has a pretty mouth that looks well all tied up in a knot, and I have a slight suspicion that she knows it, and said that a fellow who could take an automobile all to pieces and put it together again ought to be able to fix a Kodak. 
That's the way some women reason, I believe. Just as though cars and Kodaks were twin brothers. Our conversation, as I remember it now, was decidedly flat and dull. I kept thinking of Beryl being there the day before, and I never knew. Of her being off somewhere today with that Weaver fellow, and I knew it and couldn't do a thing. I hardly know which was the more unpleasant to dwell upon, but I do know that it made me mighty poor company for Edith. I sat there on a nearby rock and lighted cigarettes, only to let them go out, and glowered at King's Highway, off across the flat, as if it were the mouth of the bottomless pit. I can't wonder that Edith called me a bear, and asked me repeatedly if I had toothache or anything. By and by she had her Kodak in working order again, and took two or three pictures of the divide. Edith is very pretty, I believe and looks her best in short walking costume. I wondered why she had not ridden out to the butte. Beryl had, the time I met her there, I remembered. She had a deep-chested blue roan that looked as if he could run, and I had noticed that she wore the divided skirt, which is so popular among women who ride. I don't, as a rule, notice much what women have on, but Beryl King's feet are altogether too small for the least observant man to pass over. Edith's feet were well shod, but commonplace. I wish you'd let me have one of those pictures when they're done, I told her, as amiably as I could. She pushed back a lock of hair. I'll send you one, if you like, when I get home. What address do you claim in the wilderness? I wrote it down for her and went my way, feeling a badly used young man, with a strong inclination to quarrel with fate. Edith had managed, during her well-meant efforts at entertaining me, to couple Mr. Weaver's name all too frequently with that of her cousin. I found it very depressing. A good many things, in fact, were depressing that day. I went back to camp and stuck to work for the rest of that week, until some of the boys told me that they had seen the king's guests scooting across the prairie in the big touring car of Weaver's, evidently headed for Helena. After that, I got restless again, and every mile the roundup moved south, I took as a special grievance. It put that much greater distance between me and King's Highway, and I had got to that unhealthy stage where every mile wore on my nerves, and all I wanted was to moon around that little butte. I believe I should even have taken a morbid pleasure in watching the light in her window the nights, if it had been at all practicable. End of chapter 7 Recording by Tom Penn